we're a few weeks into this sermon uh, introduction and this uh, sermon series, but let me back up and say I'm just really encouraged to be with you all again, standing before you, studying God's word together. Um, if you're new to North Cross, uh, welcome, whether you're virtually or in person. Uh, we would love to get to know you. Maybe if you're in person, hang out a little bit afterwards outside. Um, if you're virtual, just drop an email at sit at northcrosschurch.com or info at northcrosschurch.com. Um, but again, it's encouragement to be with you. Welcome if you're new. And if you're here again, also we're, th- we're thankful to be with you. And please hang out with us as well. Or shoot an email if, if uh, we can at all help or come alongside. So as I said, we're a few weeks into a relatively new sermon series on the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, it's called Jesus and His Church, Belonging to an Ordinary Looking Miracle. Ephesians is God's I Have a Dream speech. It is God through Paul unflinchingly sticking to his divine ideals and laying out a bold vision for the church and its pace-setting community. As our sermon series title suggests, despite our best and our worst intentions and efforts, the church is meant to look and to sound and even to smell like Jesus, whose birth and life and death and resurrection are, in the words of Eugene Peterson, a miracle that didn't look like a miracle, an ordinary-looking miracle. And along these lines, for the past three weeks, we've been exploring Paul's opening prayer, just one prayer, what Scotty Smith calls a magnificent run-on sentence of wonder. 202 Greek words in a row without a period. In our uh, English translation, it's 12 verses straight, one sentence, one prayer. Um, And so we've been looking at that slowly but surely, and we're hunkering down one last time in that prayer, uh, verses 11 through 14 this time. And so as we go about doing that, looking at this prayer, would you pray with me for our time together in God's words to us? Father, so many of us enter this space in so many different places, um, with so many different emotions. Maybe when we open the word and we read it, it, it uh, explodes into a bunch of different spiritual spaces for each of us in this room. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd once again meet us where we are by your spirit, through your word, that you'd once again uh, minister to us, whether it's challenge or comfort or both. We need it. We need your word. We need to know you more. We need to know your love more. We need you to be and feel more real to us. We need you to show up. And we ask that you would show up and that you would be high and lifted up, Jesus. You'd be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen. Several weeks ago now, uh, around the beginning of August, I was not in the pulpit and I took a vacation. And this vacation involved driving five hours to the coast of North Carolina to perform my sixth of seven COVID weddings. Uh, So this was the sixth. And it was meant to be something of a family vacation and a birthday celebration mixed in with some rehearsal dinner, rehearsal, uh, ceremony, and reception. I had these two former students that I had ministered to as a college minister, and I was so excited to be with them. I loved them as students, and I loved doing premarital counseling with them, and I was excited. 
um, and so is my family. But things got stressful and a bit confusing when the week of the wedding, first one and then two of my family members got the coronavirus. You can imagine how that works. That phone call to the bride and groom was really exciting uh, to tell them that I had been contact exposed. And together we made the decision that I would travel without my family um, and officiate the wedding because the venue was outside and it was open air and I had no symptoms somehow and I actually never ended up getting it. And they really wanted me to be there. And so we came up with this kind of COVID-related compromise. I would do the rehearsal and the ceremony uh, keeping a safe distance and then I would skip the rehearsal dinner and the reception because they were both inside. Well, the night of uh, the weight of this decision hit me hard, probably a little too hard, the night of the wedding. The ceremony was, in so many ways, so picture perfect. The bride and the groom were like excited. The family and the friends leaned in and they whooped with excitement at all the right moments in the ceremony. It was really exciting to be a part of. Um, and you could tell from the way that the wedding party and guests left the open air chapel that this reception was going to be a wonderful, great big celebration. But then I remembered the agreement I had made. <laughs> and I was not going to go to the reception. <laughs> and so I ended up um, ending my time at the venue by sneaking a peek into the grand ballroom and just kind of taking in the air. <laughs> it was already humming with smelling of steak and freshly caught seafood with craft beer and light sparkling wine. The air was bursting forth with the beginnings of a joyful noise. First notes of music and laughter and the clinking of glasses, the ahas and no ways of great conversation. And I somehow managed in that moment to stealthily grab three cupcakes, one for each of my children. And then when I closed the door and behind me softly, stealthily, I turned and I faced all of a sudden the entire wedding party lined up to enter into, this, into the venue. There I was, uh, you can imagine the scene, uh, in confusion, disappointment, what other eyes, what I imagined as they watched the pastor with a sheepish look on my face, carrying off three after-dinner cupcakes and sneaking out of the music and the dancing and the laughter of that glad hour. It was a moment that I cemented by having a bowl of oatmeal for my dinner, because that's right, in a fit of self-pity, I just didn't do order, I didn't do takeout, and I didn't go through a drive-through. I ate oatmeal for dinner. <laughs> and over that bowl of oatmeal, uh, and again, I can't, exp I can't advocate that policy, uh, over that bowl of oatmeal, I realized what should have been just a bummer had become so much bigger to me, and I was bothered at a metaphorical level. <laughs> this was the first time, and I hope the last time, that I attend a wedding ceremony and do not go to the reception. Because there was definite beauty and purpose and joy in the bride and the groom, the way they walked down the aisle, the way they said their vows. And there was uh, the definite beauty there, but I missed the joy and the satisfaction, the gladness of celebrating the ceremony. I wanted to count the enormity. I wanted to attend to the joy of that newly married moment praising God for his glory and for the love that he had followed through on with this excited boy and this excited girl, but really more importantly for what that all symbolized, right? Jesus, the bridegroom, coming and following through on his promise to, to the church, his bride. And studying 
our passage this week, I was struck with how I in my life so often stop short. How so often I can forget or intentionally miss the grand celebration that God has planned. In our lives, whether we call ourselves Christians or non-Christians, we can, we can so often endure and even enjoy what we might call the ceremony of life, right? Sort of the daily significant walking and talking we do in life. And for the Christian, we could add to all this the way that we do those things in relationship with God. But we can miss attending to, counting the enormity of, praising the glory of God's over-the-top, joy-filled reception, a gift that this passage simply calls inheritance. Inheritance. An inheritance as God has planned according to the counsel of his will, the purpose to happen through the existence and sequencing of all events. All this inheritance is certainly grounded in the future, but we enjoy it on earth through the promised Holy Spirit. So God in this passage is promising a future goodness with the singing and dancing, laughter and music, the best food and the best drink can only hint and gesture at. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, God is saying, hear this. I have secured the greatest gift for you in Christ. And all you must do is receive it. Take me at my word, believe, and celebrate what's promised, praise. I'll say it again. I have secured, this is what God is saying us, to us in this passage. I have secured the greatest gift for you in Christ. All you have to do is receive it, believe, and praise. Believe and praise. As in this passage, Paul takes on our doubts and our avoidance of this good gift. That, and head on, Ephesians moves us, maybe for the first time, maybe just farther up and further in, into belief and to praise. And Ephesians assures our souls by laying out the truth. First, verses 1, 11 and 12, God's method. Second, verses 13 and 14, God's proof. So we're looking at God's method, what God has done behind the scenes to give us hope. And then second, what God has done inside of us to give us faith. Sermon outline, points, verses are in your bulletin, protected behind me. Let's begin at the beginning, verse 11, and Paul's disclosure of God's method. Let's look at God's method together. Verse 11 tells us this, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. And our natural question, especially after this sermon's very heavy metaphorical introduction, is what in the world is an inheritance? What is he talking about when he says the word inheritance? The word inheritance can, is actually more literally translated possession or lot. And in the ancient world, the word inheritance almost always referred to a piece of land, a piece of land. This is because whether it's the Old Testament or the Greco-Roman first century, land was that what, what family members passed down from generation to generation. In modern times, we think of inheritance as like a lump sum of cash, right? Or in a state that we can pretty quickly liquefy or liquidate and get into money, into our bank accounts. But for Paul, or Paul's original audience, they, when they heard the word inheritance, they immediately thought of a forever home. A forever home, a land that they would not dream of liquidating, but would gladly live on and live off of all of their days until they could pass it on to their children and their children's children. So to borrow some Old Testament imagery, 
uh, inheritance was their milk and honey, right? It's what made life strong and sweet. Inheritance was their promised rest, their security, their significance, their identity, who they are is where they're from. It was both what they celebrated and how they celebrated what they celebrated. It's hard to get across just how important this word inheritance is in scripture. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, uh, one way to think about it is the centrality of the promised land. The centrality of the promised land is what um, to Israel and to God is a lot what inheritance is about. And God here is saying, why is that all important? Because God is here saying this, that all Christians have obtained, we already possess what we deeply long for, a promise, a promised forever home. Not the nation state or mere territory of Israel, but the whole world as it was meant to be, filled with peace and joy and justice. Like the greatest moment of the greatest wedding reception you have ever been to in your life. And it's forever. It never ends. And it's with all the, it's with all the people that should have been there at that, at that moment that weren't. But if you're silently crossing your arms, right? And you're, and you're maybe just in the inside and you're kind of going, well, Sid, that's all too good to be true. Well, that's great, preacher boy. Or how can I know that God is good for that? I want you to notice how Paul draws us in. The way he uses his words to draw us into this hope-filled praise for God and this reality. We're drawn in by Paul once again by taking us aside and showing us God's mechanics. He's explaining the way the things of God work, but with passion. Don't miss the passion of Paul in this passage. It's best to picture Paul dictating this prayer, right? Because he dictated the letter of Ephesians likely. But you gotta, you gotta think of him as like he's talking too loud, right? He's using his outside voice, not his inside voice, right? Practically shouting, maybe spitting with each well-worked-over word, Picture him standing up, pacing like a speed walker, arms flung high, eyes rolled back in the, to the back of his head, picking out each inspired phrase that lights up his brain, and he's enraptured. He's shout-talking in the opening prayer, all while handcuffed to a Roman soldier in a borrowed room in a house that was definitely not anywhere close to his inheritance. And the scene, oddly enough, reminds me of this time when I was in high school or college when my mom finally convinced me to go to a dance concert. Uh, it was Mikhail Brizhnikov, and he was on tour for possibly the last time, dancing solo with his own choreography. And I'll be honest, I came in with a lot of skepticism, but I sat in that seat, and I just watched, and the power of that moment and that performance just overwhelmed me. I could feel it, but I couldn't understand it. So my mom, who had been a professional dancer in her previous life and had taught dance history for a lot of years at different small colleges in Ohio, she kind of saw this and she leaned over and started to explain what Brizhnikov was doing and why he was doing it in excited, breathless, hushed tones. And that evening, that performance only deepened its rich, fixedly thickly textured joy for me. And it's a lot like what Paul's doing here. 
He's doing this for us. He's pointing out God's artistic style, his quintessential glory. Paul's explaining how, he, how we can recognize God's hand in the handiwork of existence. Paul's giving us a taste for God's vintage, an ear for his melody, eyes to see his brushwork, and attending to God's style or glory is really at the heart of our praise. I love the way that Frederick Buechner puts it. It's a quote found in your bulletin in part. We learn to praise God, not by paying compliments, but by paying attention. Watch how the trees exult when the wind is in them. Mark the utter stillness of the great blue heron in the swamp. Listen to the sound of the rain. Learn how to say hallelujah from the ones who say it right. To behold God's glory, to sense God's style, is the closest you can get to God this side of paradise. Just as to read King Lear is the closest you can get to Shakespeare. So when Paul tells us the gift of our inheritance was predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, he's teaching us God's style. So we might praise his glory and draw that much closer to him in hope. And the lesson we can draw from Paul's teaching here on God's glory in verses 11 and 12 is this. It is God, not we, who has taken the initiative and secured our inheritance. Another, in another person's words, we are loved not because of what is in us, but because of what is in God. We are loved not because of what is in us, but because of what is in God. And Paul shares this lesson with us to give us some relief. <laughs> we don't have to white knuckle our futures anymore, right? You see, God gives us a hope that he has decided and he has acted on our behalf. God works all things according to his will. Yes, look, what we do today has consequences tomorrow, but we can't change tomorrow's all things. We can't even change today's all things today, right? The future and all of its complexity is entirely God's. Moving through us, but also moving through other people and other things. This is why Paul, for emphasis, uses so many words related to God's fully already planned future desire, right? He says purpose. He says counsel. He says will. Those things are working, or more literally, God's will effects or produces all things in a way that no one and nothing can frustrate. Hear the promise there. He will draw a straight line every time, whether the stick is crooked or straight. And our worry cannot add a single hour to any of our lives. To quote Jesus. Yes, again, we have a part to play, right? Our actions, our decisions absolutely matter. But the ending of our stories, no matter how stumbling or weakly we get there, the end is, has already been written. We possess an inheritance obtained for those who hope in Christ Jesus. And for some of you, that seems very familiar. And so sometimes let's just put it in a different, unfamiliar context. When he was a missionary in the subcontinent of India, Leslie Newbigin realized the uniqueness of the Christian hope grounded in a God who wills all of history. 
And so Leslie Newbigin writes about this process of realization. It starts with him trying to learn the Southern Indian language of Tamil. Okay? He's learning this word, this language Tamil, and he realizes the language does not have a word for hope. There's no word in the Tamil language that has a word is, that means hope. And so Newbigin goes to his language teacher, who's an Indian, and he says, uh, asks him about the lack of this word. And after some confusion and back and forth, the closest concept that his teacher can give him is this, this phrase, things will be what they will be. Things will be what they will be. That is light years away from hope. That is light years away from what Paul's promising in verse 11. So much so that when Newbegin points that out to a friend of his, this biblical concept of hope, to a Hindu scholar, that scholar, remember he's Hindu, says this about the Bible. As I read the Bible, I find in it a quite unique interpretation of universal history. I love this line. You Christian missionaries have talked of the Bible as if it were simply another book of religion. It's so much more. And so, God, so Paul's unveiling of God's method, passage of scripture like this one, stun even the scholars of other religions, let alone Christians, right? And Paul, anticipating Christian and non-Christian astonishment, Paul quickly moves from God's method to God's proof. And that's our verses 13 and 14, our second and final point. Paul is still so exuberant. And you've got to hear that tone as he pulls our attention away from contemplating the inner logic of the mind of God. He moves us from there, that heavenly abstraction, down to concrete personal experience. Verse 13, Paul tells us this, right? In him, in Christ, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is about the clearest description we have of Christian conversion in the Bible. It's just straightforward, isn't it? When someone hears the gospel message of salvation, and I'm going to say that message, it's this. We do not love God and love others or even ourselves until we believe Jesus Christ came to earth and gave us God's love. That, God, that Jesus gave us God's love by dying for us on a cross. And there he gave his selflessness for our selfishness. That's the gospel. When everyone hears these words, and simply trust the Jesus that they're about, then that person, those people, have the Holy Spirit. God as Spirit dwells in their hearts. And so the living spiritual presence of God the Holy Spirit is our proof that God is good for it. He's good for the inheritance that he has promised and he's promised it in, until we acquire the possession of it in verse 14. But Paul underlines what it means to have God within us. Sometimes we take this for granted. It's become a cliche in Christian circles. It's Jesus in your heart. So what are the three descriptions of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit within you? First, the Holy Spirit is promised. Look at verse 13 there. He's promised. This is merely to point backwards to the history of salvation and the many Old and New Testament prophets that came before, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and John the Baptist, who promised God's spirit for every single believer. The spirit with all of his benefits, right? God's law written on our hearts, a personal and experiential salvation, knowledge of God, a forgiveness of our sins, and so on and so on and so forth, right? We go on and on and on. 
And really the fact that the Holy Spirit is promised from so very long ago is really just an incredible proof, a reminder that God's word has proved itself trustworthy, right? Second significance of the Holy Spirit. He seals those who are in Jesus, who believe in Jesus. Verse 13 again. What does sealing mean? Sealing refers back to this ancient practice where people like kings would write, would sign documents by heating up candle wax, pouring it over the document, and then um, this important document, and then stamping their ring seal into the hot wax. So it was like a signature, right? And so having the spirit is God's signature on your life. We belong to God and he will protect us even to the level of the hairs on our head. And the Spirit's working through us. And su- the surprising and seemingly ordinary love we show, the good we do, this living faith like a seal indicates our spiritual authenticity. So what does that mean? Look, yes, people come to know Jesus by a Christian's love. That's absolutely true. But people can also know that a Christian knows Jesus by experiencing Jesus's love through him or through her. Isn't that cool? We're that kind of conduit, that kind of mediator for the mediator. And that idea of a seal or sign of Jesus's love gets to the third and final description of the Holy Spirit found in verse 14. And perhaps this is the most powerful. The spirit who is the guarantee or down payment of inheritance, our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Here's what Paul's saying, and I think this is perhaps his most convincing proof in all of the, of, the, of the verses. It's convincing proof of the joy set before us in God's inheritance. He says it this way, our best spiritual moments, when we deeply feel and we deeply know the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. Those moments are just God's first payment. As powerful as those moments are, they're just the very first installment awaiting full future payment, right? Our most holy experience of awe, our most tender experience of God's grace, are merely seeing through a glass darkly. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And we will see God. And we will see him face to face. Know him and be fully known by him. And we will no longer need hope. We will no longer need faith. Because we will be floating awash in his love. The greatest of these three. And when we get caught up and the praise of God's glory, when we experience what the musician Nick Cave calls a sudden shrinking of self, yet a rapid expansion of the soul, when by the Holy Spirit we feel, oh, so close to the sound of God's voice and the light in his eyes. But those moments, right, those precious moments still feel one remove away from reality, like a Zoom call, right? They feel so temporary, like a fist bump instead of a hug. Those moments are pushing us towards a foretaste divine, right? They're a foretaste divine of an eternal inheritance whose existence opens up into a blessed bear hug where all the rottenness and all the surfacey 
superficiality, the shallowness that's passed between you and God, between me and God, between you and others and me and others. All of that is cleansed and mended for all time and brought back together and up and out and further in and further up into joy unspeakable, full of glory. And it reminds me, of all things, of a romantic comedy in the 1990s called Joe and the Volcano. I don't know if you know this movie. It's pretty old. Uh, But Tom Hanks, of course, plays the leading man, and his name is Joe, and he lives an unpleasant, demanding, chronically sick life until he gets a false death diagnosis from a doctor, and it catapults him to change his life, to really truly live once and for all as the everyman he's supposed to represent. But instead of like, you know, the typical post-pandemic bucket list that we all have now, with making overdue changes, you know, traveling to places we always wanted to go, Joe decides to go to some random remote Pacific island. And it's there on the way to that island with a volcano, of course, that Joe meets the reluctant tour guide, Patricia. And who plays Patricia but Meg Ryan? Because in the 1990s, every romantic comedy starred... Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, okay? And so, you know, Meg Ryan's playing this sort of reluctant tour guide to, to, to Joe, Tom Hanks. And, but you can start to see the romantic chemistry start to kick in. And just as it's about to kick in and hit full flight, uh, the, a typhoon hits. And it hits their boat. And suddenly Joe is floating. He's awash in the stormy Pacific Ocean on a raft made of steamer trunks. And his only companion is Patricia, who... Uh, who was nearly drowned. He rescued her, and she's been unconscious for days. So Joe's there practically alone, right? Dehydrated from a lack of fresh water and in the hot, hot sun for days. And Joe begins to look around at his circumstances and look back at his life, and he feels this deep, abiding despair. He thinks about all the trials, and all the difficulties, all the failures, and all the sins. But then one night, Joe wakes, and he looks at the stars. Done this every night. But for, the, for, for some reason, for this one time, all of a sudden, their bright spill across the inky darkness no longer looks random. Each star begins to connect to one another, like, you know, with big, thick white lines, like a child's dot-to-dot drawing book. And slowly constellations start to form in the night sky. And all of this wonder brings Joe to this praise-filled moment. There is this order. There is this plan to the whole universe. His world, his life are not random. And so there's, there he is floating awash in the Pacific Ocean, lost somewhere out in the deeps. But Joe rises to his feet, right? He's on top of these bobbing steamer trunks and he shouts out, with profound purpose to the evening night sky, God, I thank you for my life. I did not know you are so big, big. In this moment, the praise of God's glory is the pivot for everything that follows in the movie, right? Patricia wakes up, they soon float to safety, and yes, they, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, get married. And, you know, the reception somehow has this volcano eruption in the middle of it. Of course, because Joe and the volcano. And while the ending may feel oh so predictable, like every rom-com you've ever seen, it's predictable for a reason. Because God is that big. And there is a plan and an order to this life a plan simple enough to God that it looks like a child draw by dots picture book. And yes, 
like every good romantic comedy, this order and this plan for all things ends in a wedding reception. (laughs) Right? What Revelation chapter 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb with a fully paid forever home, face-to-face with God, no longer on Zoom, whose love is rejoicing over us and makes every other experience of love that we've ever felt feel fake and achingly real, as fake and achingly real as a romantic comedy starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in the 1990s, all to the praise of the glory of God. Which, to quote Frederick Buechner one last time, is about as measured, that praise is about as measured as a volcanic eruption. (laughs) Would you pray with me? Father, there's so much in this passage and it's so easy to brush over it. It's so easy to dismiss it, to keep it at arm's length and think, where are you? What are you up to? And I'm thankful for this reminder that you're up to a heck of a lot. You're up to an awful lot in our lives. And I pray that you would remind us of that. Would you bring the words of this passage to bear on our hearts and our minds? Would you change us by them? Change the very way we do life by your scriptures through your spirit. Remind us of of who you are and what you're up to. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.